Welcome to Diverse Conversations. This is Ashka Patel. Thank you very much for joining me yet once again for another insightful, inspiring episode. Today, I'm very excited to introduce you to our guest, who is none other than Morinike Eniola Olesebikian. Uh, she is a multi-award-winning serial entrepreneur and pharmacy owner. She's contributing to the future of medicine by building innovative engineering and technology solutions to supply personalized patient-centered medications globally. Morinike is the CEO and founder of Kemet Group. She builds innovative health solutions to achieve black equity and dignity globally. She does it with love and deep compassion and through strong, responsible partnerships. Uh, driven to make a difference since she was seven, when she first learned about the entire villages of children losing their parents to HIV as they consumed counterfeit drugs. Her most recent startup is about developing modular medication manufacturing to address critical drug shortages. Her innovation in modular medication manufacturing has received validation as a recipient of the 2021 MIT Solve Global Challenges Community Award, first place among 28 of 2020 chemical engineering capstone projects at the University of Calgary, second place at Zetan Plant Design Competition at the Canadian Chemical Engineering Conference 2021. Her work also resolved shortened, uh, shorted children's medication for pain, fever, infection, and vomiting for an estimated 3,000 families in four months. Moranike is also the founder of the Ruben Rouge Foundation, a million-dollar social enterprise addressing health disparities for marginalized Black people. Uh, she is also deeply committed to practices that cultivate radical self-honesty and accountability to learning from every experience and to aligning with her evolving understanding of her life's purposes. Uh, she is passionate about systems change work and has served in leadership role for the Alberta College of Pharmacists, um, College of Pharmacy Engineers Without Border and Capital Care Foundation. So it's my great honor to welcome Marinike to this conversation and she's joining us all the way from Africa where she's currently touring and we'll learn more about her journey in her own words. Stay tuned. All right, so welcome back. And now we have Maureen Ike joining us uh, all the way from Africa. She is currently touring, as I had already mentioned. Um, and, you know, this is such a great honor, Maureen Ike. Thank you so much for taking this time out. I know you're very busy on this trip and you're doing some incredible things on this trip as well. And I would love to hear more about it, um, you know, as we have this conversation. But first of all, before uh, we get kind of in the crux of the matter, um, I would love to hear your pharmacy journey because I know you have your Canadian roots in that and it would be great to kind of hear your story and kind of see what motivated you to dive into this unique world and this unique work that you're doing. Yeah, I guess I'll start my pharmacy journey from my childhood because it really didn't start out being a pharmacy journey per se. Uh, for whatever reason, as a really young kid, I wanted to be part of a solution for people living with HIV. I think it has something to do, I speculate, because I guess every time you pull a memory file, you corrupt it a little bit, but I speculate that it's because of the time um, in Nigeria. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is in the 90s in Nigeria. And there at that time was a lot of um, the HIV pan epidemic and the deaths and right. orphans from that. And my father is a physician, my mom's uh, working in the food and drug agency. So there's always been this passion from childhood around this issue and wanting to be part of a solution, wanting to find a cure for it. And so that really has been a lifelong um thing for me. It drove the founding of a foundation while I was in college. And then when I became a pharmacist, I uh, went to, I, I looked for ways to become an associate owner on the Shoppers Drug Mart. And through that came to what I'm working on now. So it's, I guess for me, the, the pharmacy part actually <laughs> wasn't it started out as I went to the U of A wanting to be a physician mm -hmm. and they wouldn't accept physician. They wouldn't accept international students into the faculty of medicine. And so I thought, okay, well, I guess I would go with pharmacy because it's still aligned with this grand vision of being part of the solution for people living with HIV. And so that's been my path. So I went from the U of A faculty of pharmacy to pharmacy ownership as an associate. And then in that vein, started to explore the issue of drug access mm. um, or lack thereof in African countries. 
And that brought me to building my startups. I say startups because it's now, <laughs> it's like a startup conglomerate at this point. <laughs> yes, you're a busy woman. That I know for sure. Chemic <laughs> group of companies. Yeah. So tell us more about Chemic Group, because I know during the pandemic, you were addressing um, gaps as they were coming up um, through the solutions that you were building. And I would like, you know, I would love to share that work with the audience at large through your words. For sure. So Kemet is really an interesting thing. So um, as I mentioned, I have this childhood dream. I want to be part of the solution. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I, I built a foundation. It, it's called the Ribbon Rouge Foundation to really understand how come in Canada we still have HIV disproportionately affecting Black people. And so through that, I end up amassing a lot of uh, connections on the continent as well. So this thing started as just this rookie amateur fashion art show. Right. <laughs> like you have to picture the most amateur fashion show known to man. And that's what Ribbon Rouge was when we started. And I was in pharmacy school when we started at the U of A. But what that did do is it plugged me into a whole bunch of diplomatic connections on the continent. Right. So I became a pharmacist. I go into learning entrepreneurship by being an associate owner. I feel like that was the best MBA a person could have got, like real world master's in business administration. But at some point, there are so many experiences and work and life Mm. things that I must along the way but I started to get really curious as a pharmacist about medication access on Mm -hmm. the continent so I started traveling back in 2018 across African countries and very quickly what became evident to me was these really superficial statistics but underneath them are really complex problems 90% of drugs are imported into Africa in some places 7% of what's imported is fake Mm -hmm. so ask people either don't get access to drugs because we're trying to import it, or when you do get access to drugs in some places, most of what's been imported isn't good. So people die from not getting drugs or die from getting bad drugs. And then there's the time it actually takes to get drugs in. Mm. So it would be some countries would get their medications. You order, this is March. You won't get the medication until September for all of your country. And the volumes are the same as maybe a group purchasing organization in Canada that they would get it in 24 hours. So it became obvious to me that it wasn't that we don't have the technology to do some of the things I was noticing gaps in. It's actually that we just accepted that this is how things are in Africa. So to your point, to your question, this then spurred my thinking on, well, how do you solve these problems? Mm -hmm. And some of the initial ideas I came up with was manufacturing has to be done differently it has to be done in small footprint facilities the facilities need to be digitized and connected and we need to be able to make drugs on demand and so there are all sorts of fancy buzzwords for this now industry 5.0 and the idea of mass customization and advanced manufacturing and so I then during the pandemic, decided to build my ideas, but I could not convince anyone to give me the money for my ideas. <laughs> so this then became, um, I, I had to come up with a way, this became a problem. Like, how am I going to build these small footprint, digitally interconnected, advanced manufacturing facilities. And so the first idea was I would build a compounding facility. This might sound like a a huge leap from this really futuristic thing I said to this old school apothecary thing that where we started. Right. But Netflix started as a DVD rental service. No, (laughs) exactly. It did. It did. (laughs) But what I did see was that It really, in a way, is kind of a return to the original way pharmacists were, and that this lab could be my proof of concept, Mm -hmm. and it could generate revenue, 
And it could help me with some of the struggles I was having with fundraising. Right. And so Kemet Group actually comprises of a lab that's a compounding facility, a software company that actually is the digitization that I was I was saying. So a small footprint facility that makes drugs on demand, the digitization in um, a software company. And then coming soon in the next 18 months, this factory that I initially wanted to build because I've now been able to attract um, the potential, the funders, potential employees and the different groups of stakeholders that I needed to be able to do that. Wow. First of all, congratulations, because I think what you have achieved is no small feat. Um, I think you ha- you are an inspiration to pharmacists. Like, you know, like it, it, you're literally, you know, thinking outside of the box, even, um, you know, you're you're addressing a lot of these societal and system system issues um, that exist. Um, and, and, you know, you are really taking the skill set we have as a pharmacist, but you are now like literally like your impact is so much more broader and wider. And I'm so happy for you that uh, you your vision that you had started off with is, you know, in the very near future is coming to life. Ah, that brings me so much joy. And I'm so, so great. Like, I'm so happy for you. Oh my gosh. But at the same time, like, you know, you had said one thing about, you know, here I am trying to create this futuristic uh, drug facility. And now here I'm going back to the, you know, back to the old ways of doing uh, pharmacy. But at the same time, like, you know, I think that's the beauty of entrepreneurship and that's the beauty of innovating, right? Where there's the journey is never perfect. But at the same time, you know, I think Rome was never built in a day. So knowing, seeing your success and the way it has panned out the way it did, I think you have touched on so many pillars. And I think you already addressed some of the challenges that you kind of faced, um, you know, as you started off with this vision. What were some highlights? Because I'm sure like, you know, you met some great celebrations and I, I want to make sure we highlight those as well, because you're achieving your vision could not have happened without those highlights. Yeah, I don't think I've I've achieved my visions so to, so to say, but almost I there. <laughs> we're we're working on it. We're getting closer. Um, I would say maybe a first highlight would be the first financier that actually believed in me. So the Social yes. Enterprise Fund. Um, so the first one in that was for me it was just like this. Oh, there's someone that actually believes in this vision and is going to go in first. Right. That was exciting for me. Um, the first order. Of <laughs> like, course. <laughs> like, the first order, Dykwalfenak uh, 10% <laughs> was exciting. <laughs> you have to celebrate. You have to take the wins. As have, to. You have to. Take the wins. Have to. Um, I would say maybe more recently, looking around and actually seeing employees. Yes. People actually employed in the thing. Um uh, and then as I as I'm now returning, so as you mentioned earlier, I'm now re- returning on to the continent and right. going back to the initial people I had spoke spoken um with uh five years ago. That's that's pretty impressive for mm-hmm. me because when I first um came to uh talk to to people i really had no idea no no idea what i was doing or what i was going to be building or and it was just really an exploratory thing of i'm a pharmacist there's drug access issues i've always been bothered by hiv and epidemics on the continent and now um, non-communicable diseases are a huge burden here as well. Right. Um, and just trying to understand how 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 to be of service. Mm-hmm. So now being able to come back and revisit people and uh, with so much more accomplished, like we've actually built a lab, we've actually you know provided care we've distributed drugs we've built software we've resolved shortages like it's actually really i would say that this return trip also goes goes up on that um on that board of of things i'm thankful for yeah absolutely absolutely and thank you for sharing that because you know i think and you know pardon me if i uh 
you know, if I give the impression that you've achieved the vision that you had started off with, I know, but you, I know, and I believe in you and I have that faith in you. Like, you know, we have met like a few times, but I don't think um, I already get this, this impression that, you know, your conviction is so solid uh, that I have no doubts that you will achieve your vision. And I just hope that the partners that you're looking for align for you so that you can achieve this vision sooner, um, you know, as soon as you can, because I think the work you are leading is so much needed and it's addressing such great um, gaps that exist, especially for the vulnerable population that needs it the most. Right. Um, and, you know, I will, I will come back to the whole part about uh, that whole inspiration thing, but before I do, I do want to touch base since we're talking about your trip in Africa right now, you know, tell us a little bit more about that and in, in terms of what are you doing? How is it going? Um, you know, what can we look forward to from Morinike um, as you are wrapping up or as once you come back to Canada? <laughs> For sure. So about Africa. So as I mentioned, somewhere in 2018, I started traveling these countries to understand, okay, what are the medication gaps? What does it look like to access drugs on the continent? And that year, the concept I came up with was this idea of, um, I call them factories in a box. Mm. <laughs> when I started out, they were a factory in a box, right. <laughs> but now there are 32 shipping containers. So it's, it's a bit of a misnomer to call them a factory in a box, but I still keep calling it a factory in a box. Once the engineers got involved, it stopped being artistic. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so it started out as a factory in a box right now. We still call it a factory in a box. But anyway, so this idea of um, transportable, they didn't uh -huh. have to be portable. I wanted them to be transportable so that they could be made in one place and moved somewhere else. They could be reconfigurable. They would be able to make the most um, essential drugs in the particular region that they are placed. They would be interconnected with other factories in boxes across the region so that you could have some kind of um, demand uh, guiding what you're actually producing in the in the vicinity where you've located it. Um, so then what I got to work doing was I rallied a group of engineers and architects and we came up with the architectural design and then we went to raise money and nobody would give me the money I wanted. So we're trying to raise $6 million and I, the feedback I kept getting was, your pre-revenue, and it does not matter your pedigree and or anything you've accomplished, your pre-revenue. You um, are building this thing for Africa. I was in Alberta trying to raise money. We don't understand Africa. And um, what is this hardware thing that you're doing? Med tech hardware, what is this? Um, we only get software. Right. And things that are maybe more oil and gas-like. <laughs> <laughs> That medtech, that that really was the feedback I kept getting. Wow. Um, so so then, as I already described, I then resorted to okay, I'm going to find my way around this. I'm going mm -hmm. to make money. I will build software. I will do something that's not in Africa. Um, and so what then happened was I was able to prove the concept I had with the lab and the software. I was able to get a proof of concept. So I was able to attract some funding. And so now I'm back to the initial countries and a few additional ones um, to continue my engagement with government, with the um, private sector as well. And so the countries I had initially gone to were um, Botswana, Uganda, Kenya, Nigeria, Chad. Mm -hmm. And so this trip, I'm returning to those countries, but I'm also returning to a few that Though I didn't go to them, I had been engaging them through these years. Mm -hmm. So when I say them, I mean the government, I mean their investment and trade centers, their economic development boards. Uh, Kemet, uh, my company and my group of companies contributes to nine United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So the economic development boards in each country have vested interests in what I'm doing as well. And I'm returning this time to actually complete demand tests. So as I've gone to each country, we've been securing purchase orders, looking at how can we actually start generating revenue from distributing medications and 
um, using some of the software we've developed to actually resolve drug shortages mm -hmm. and increase drug access um, on the continent. And what we're hoping is that in these engagement um, efforts, we would then be able to guide the deployment of our facilities in each country as well. Uh, yeah, so that's why we're here. We're here to, yes, expand our business and do business on the continent, but do it in a way that we we contribute to social impact here. Absolutely, absolutely. And no, that, that's incredible. I think, uh, again, I you leave me in awe every time I hear, um, you know, the, about the work that you do, because um, I think you're leading a movement really more so than anything else. Um, I think you're, mm -hmm. you're really carving a path. Uh, that's the way I see it. And that's the way, you know, I feel about this work of yours, because um, what you're doing is not easy, like trying to navigate all these conversations in a country that you know, you may not be the most familiar with, especially their systems and the way they they talk to each other and like, you know, what are the systems even, are they even in place, or et cetera? Um, you know, I, I and I guess just for point of reference, like, you know, it, that's how I feel when I go to India. Like, even though I have roots there, but it still sometimes feels very different for me to kind of engage in those parts of the, the processes, right? Because I'm just like, I don't know where to start all this conversation if I were to start like, this conversation. <laughs> yeah, like the wrong word would trip you up and it's just a cultural thing yes like even even like there was there was a meeting I was in when I used the word constraints so I asked oh are there any other constraints I should know of I'm thinking of I'm saying right. it as an engineering way in terms of constraints but right. the way it got received was as though I was um correcting or casting like correcting them for having put any kind of roadblocks in my way mm. But I was, I had no weight on that word. And so there are all these cultural things I have to consider. And each country, I either lean in or lean back, depending on what I know is going to happen if I do, if I show right. up with certain behaviors. It's very interesting. As in like a Nigerian Canadian person, it's also interesting the the play that happens there between. I'm Nigerian and so I'm accepted in African countries and I'm Canadian and I'm accepted in certain ways. Um, and having to balance that too, like knowing that there, there's a certain amount of privilege that's coming from the fact that I'm a Canadian company. Right. And negotiating that too, it's it's a very interesting <laughs> experience. Yes. I can I and, can definitely relate to that. Sorry, I interrupted you. <laughs> oh no, no, no. I was just going to um buttress the sort of um to just buttress that that a lot of stuff I'm doing is new mm -hmm. and it's really a, a a thing of learning as I go, paying attention, being very observant of how I'm saying things, how things land. But you said something about the social movement, and that that actually makes me excited that that came from someone, not me, <laughs> um, because it's in my true. heart, <laughs> I really I really want it to be that the work is held by a multitude of people. Yeah. So it would be a beautiful thing to watch it be that it's a multitude of people in from diverse backgrounds, different disciplines beyond our disciplines that actually take concern for the health and well-being of everyone. Yes. Right. So, yeah. I, I love this. It's like the global thinking hat that comes on. And, and, you know, again, like I think, yeah, I, and I truly, you know, stand by my words. I really do think the work you have embarked on is a movement in a way, because you are literally unifying at the same time, addressing and, you know, creating this equitable way of how we deliver healthcare to our, especially our most vulnerable populations who do not have access. That's like the, the key that you're addressing. And, you know, pharmacists are known to be the most accessible people. So you're literally like, you know, like this is like, oh my gosh, it's like a full circle moment in a way, because he's like, here you're a pharmacist who is the most accessible healthcare professional. And here you are bringing healthcare access to the most vulnerable populations. Like how, how better can this get than this? 
Um, but, you know, and I, I think you're also like, I know you are an avid advocate when it comes to achieving equity and, you know, your work truly does reflect that um, in terms of, you know, what you wish to achieve in that space. So can you tell us a little bit, because I believe you're also working on a project in the space. Um, can you share a little bit more about that? And, um, you know, just how can people help out if if they're interested? For sure. So our lab currently, we have a few initiatives on the go. Mm -hmm. Our lab is currently working um, in in our product development, just looking at how you can have empathy in drug formulations. Mm. So the way I experience medications, as a at least the way I've experienced it over the years as a community pharmacist, is that a lot of medications don't seem to be designed with the patient. Uh, at the center when it comes to the way the formulations are made. Mm -hmm. So we have, for, and some of these things seem trivial, maybe for the healthcare provider, but not necessarily for the patients. Mm -hmm. So you have medications for children that just taste really awful. You have tablets and capsules for the elderly that yes. when we know that a lot of people that elderly have like something like 25% of them have trouble swallowing. And the majority of the formulations we keep dispensing to elderly people are tablets and capsules. Yes. Um, this stuff might just seem trivial, but really it's a lot of our patients that are struggling with this, uh, this stuff, right? We have drugs that are explicitly binary, mm. designed for men or designed for women. And then you have trans and queer folk trying to like make shift and make these things work for them, but it was never designed with them in mind, the formulations. You have stuff, you have barely anything that's explicitly designed for palliative care. Mm. Um, we have products for pain that don't necessarily need to be ingested, but they're ingested. And so, we, in, at our lab, we see compounding the way everyone else does, like, oh, someone is struggling with the commercially available medication, so for whatever reason, it needs to be adapted. But also, fundamentally, when it comes to drug delivery, we think that there's no empathy, mm -hmm. that empathy is actually lacking in most of our drug formulations. So the project that we've been funded for by the Canadian Women's Foundation in Women's History Month, wow. <laughs> coincidentally, <laughs> is um, a project to actually explore this with trans and queer folk. So we're calling it, We Are Here, We Are Queer, a personalized medicine project investigating life-affirming care. And we're going to actually pull together um, trans and queer folks, and we're going to sit with them and imagine if drugs em were empty if drugs were designed with empathy, mm. if, if the medications that were available to them actually met them at the point of their healing and their, the point of their need, like what would drugs, what would medications look like if they actually centered trans and queer folk experience and their um, desires for their healing? And so, yeah, it's it's really exciting for us. So it's, really, it's funded by the Canadian Women's Foundation. We're fortunate to have uh, Gender and Social Justice School of Arts at McMaster's University to also be a partner. And we're so honored to have as our principal investigator, Dr. Cyrus Marcus Ware. Uh, he's a Canadian artist, activist, and scholar, and also uh, one of the founding members of the Black Lives Matter movement in Toronto. Wow. And so, yeah, that's what we're up to at our lab. Oh, my <laughs> um, gosh. That's, you make it sound like you're not doing much, but this is incredible. Like, you know, drug delivery with empathy. I mean, that just stuck to me. And I'm like, how did we not talk about this for this long of a time you know and and I think even this project that you are now like you know this research project that you are leading through your lab it, it, this is I certainly I'm looking forward to the results you know um, once they become available because I, I think it will really help us as healthcare providers especially as pharmacists to you know kind of see what we can do better to take care of our our you know our our trans folks and like you know just in terms of how they wish to be cared for um, especially as well and like you know what works for them and what doesn't work for them right so I think what you this is I think one of our it, to my knowledge, I have not come across any research studies, but then I'm not, I'm no expert in this area either. So, uh, you know, but I, I do think that this is a great learning opportunity for all of us to, 
understand what we can do better. Um, so thank you so much for sharing that. And, you know, um, what we will do is if you have any information about this project, or if there's anything um, that you wish to share with the audience, please provide it to us and we'll make sure to share it so that if anyone wishes to um, reach out or you know participate with you in that group we'll make sure that we give them the access if this is one way of helping out in this project if we can <laughs> for sure so for sure we'll have our link it's just kemet.care so mm -hmm. k-e-m-e-t dot c-a-r-e there will be on their sign up form so for people who want to participate in the surveys um, they would be able to participate that way for healthcare providers who want to get access to our findings. There will also just be a newsletter subscription. So you can just subscribe to our newsletter. And as the uh, project uh, goes underway, you'll, you'll be kept in the loop. And in terms of education, mm -hmm. one of the things we're hoping to accomplish with uh, MacMasters and with our principal investigator is actually to create some kind of curriculum or some kind of educational resource that is co-designed with uh, the population that we're working with, mm -hmm. with trans and queer uh, people and communities and um, folks. And so what we want to then be able to do is actually build as as you've correctly noted, build that also into our education in yes. as healthcare professionals. Yeah. Absolutely. No, and we'll make sure to link that below into the description box. So and also we'll share the link um as much as we can so that we can make sure that, you know, this work that you're doing um reaches as many people um as we as we can because I think it's incredible work and definitely something to be, you know, kind of following up and making sure that we all learn from this experience. Um, and Marnike, as we are, you know, wrapping up this conversation, I do have a few more questions for you <laughs> uh, before I let you go, because um, I, I certainly and, you know, I, I, I say this uh, many times, but I, I truly do mean it in, in its all genuity because you are an inspiration, um, you know, to me um, and I'm sure to many others because you do lead by example when it comes to innovation. You're this fierce energy, you know, there's like, I'm not going to give up. I am going to continue no matter if you give me funding or no funding. I'm going forward with this <laughs> and it, it's it takes yes, ma'am <laughs> it takes a lot of courage to be able to do that you know like it takes a lot of grit it takes a lot of determination and I mean again I am nowhere close to being the entrepreneur that you are but like you know being a small scale entrepreneur I know how difficult it can be sometimes you know when you're facing those roadblocks day and day and day and day and it's you know what motivates you to continue your journey I, th I think that's what I wanted to kind of you know explore a little bit more with you. <laughs> I think we are all each the type of entrepreneur that we need to be at the stage that we're at and we're good just the way we are. Yes. What motivates uh what motivates me? I uh, that's a really good question. I I think I have a really strong why mm. and I think I have really like clarity on that why. My why is I I am passionately driven by access to medicines for everyone. Mm -hmm. And I use the word medicines to include medications, right. to include the space in which people get their healing, to include the personnel and providers that provide healing and all the holistic ways that people actually get healed. And, and I'm really passionate about that. And that keeps me motivated. And how did that become a passion? I think it was nurtured in curiosity. Mm -hmm. Because I say this because there are also people that feel like they don't have any passion or they don't have any purpose. Or, And I think that for some of us, we have that. We have some kind of curiosity or something from our childhood or something that just whatever reason fools us. And for me, I was fortunate that that was my, my the case with me. It was the thing that just never went away, even though I was wanting to conform to other ways of being a pharmacist and even other ways to own pharmacies and be an entrepreneur, it just wouldn't leave me alone. Like this deep-seated desire to do something on the continent that would help with access to medicines for everyone. And so it was just nurtured and it was nurtured in curiosity. It was nurtured in the initial passion project, the amateur fashion show that then became <laughs> a, a, 
a transdisciplinary arts institution that does a lot of good research on health disparities in Alberta. So that keeps me motivated. And I say the the sort of the trajectory of it. So people at different stages of their journey can hopefully um, have something to hold on to there mm -hmm. that you start a fashion show and you just never know that you might be building a transportable drug manufacturing facility, <laughs> right? Like, so you start with the thing that is in front of you and you yes. nurture the curiosity and it, it, it blossoms into a passion. But there are some people that don't have that. Mm -hmm. Just start something. Exactly. Um, just, just start because also there's another path to passion mm -hmm. that has to do with grit. That actually has to do with the way Duckworth, Angela Duckworth describes grit where you start a thing and by trial and error, you knock out things. Like you kind of go, yeah, not that, not that, not that, not that. And and just stick the sticking to it actually gets you to a point where you discover the thing that you really are passionate about and that you really are motivated by. Right. Uh, yeah. That is such incredible. I, and again, like, you know, I can, I think um, you, you have so much experience to that's, you know, where that wisdom is coming from. Right. Like, and, and thank you for sharing that advice, because I think it's always a friendly and much needed reminder from time, time to time. Uh, Cause we all go through the ebbs and flows of um, entrepreneurship. And um, sometimes you do need that pick me up. And I think this is going to be that perfect um, soundbite that will make sure that I'm like, okay, let's go. <laughs> if she can do this, I can do this. <laughs> <laughs> you really are an inspiration, Monique. Uh, but and you know, again, um, I think one of the other things I, I also wanted to like that, that I'm trying to address, or at least through this podcast, is you know, understanding um any cultural or inclusion um or barriers around that space. And I know you you have an avid interest in that area as well, in terms of achieving equity and inclusion. Um, you know, how, was there any experiences that you faced um in this journey of becoming a pharmacist and an entrepreneur that you know kind of further um you know enforced you to be like no no this work needs to be done because if if it's me it's like I want to make, avoid it for somebody else man <laughs> so I it's interesting because I'm not sure that as a pharmacist I can think of something that specifically I can be like okay mm. becoming a pharmacist I felt excluded or you know um I will say that the way I became a pharmacist is interesting because I wanted to be a physician. Right. But the faculty at the time at U of A wouldn't accept international students. And I remember sitting with the dean and asking in the faculty of science and asking why. And right. the reason I was given, I think I was given a, a couple of reasons, maybe three reasons was they needed to have a, a small class. And this was a way to automatically like just remove a whole bunch of people so they would have a small class. People who are international tend not to stay in Canada. They tend to go back home and they wanted people that would stay here. And I think those were the, the two reasons I was given, but that was a structural thing. Right. That was this, that's like a structural way to actually discriminate between people who are international or immigrant and people who are landed. Right. So that was an exclusion from a healthcare profession. I've made peace with it because actually being a pharmacist was really good. <laughs> it's, it's been a really good thing. So exactly. I've made peace with it. Um, as a pharmacist, there are all these moments with patients mm -hmm. where patients are like racist yes. and very discriminatory and quite oppressive. There's that. Um, but also because I took this path in, in like ownership and, mm -hmm. There's been a few, there's been a few, uh, I would say, things I've had to deal with in terms of almost like shape shifting myself to conform with yeah. how things are done here. So how to speak polit in a politic way, yes. <laughs> uh, like all the experiences you would have as a Black woman navigating ownership and leadership in Canada. Mm -hmm. I would describe those sort of things as exclusion in a way. I also want to acknowledge some of my privilege in that because I studied at the University of Alberta, right. there's a good chance that that was also why I didn't experience as much 
um, exclusion as a pharmacist because I have friends who didn't study at the University of Alberta, who didn't study in Canada, and they experienced pharmacy practice, getting jobs, getting internship, getting all that stuff is is so much more hard. It's so much harder yes. if you didn't study in Canada. And I also acknowledge another privilege that most people might not pay attention to, but my accent, right? Because I speak a certain way, and I don't necessarily have the deep intonations and accents from my upbringing mm. that also gives me some kind of privilege that probably meant that I didn't get as excluded from pharmacy practice as others. Mm. Now, entrepreneurship, that's a whole other ball game of exclusion where even till date, the funding and financing that I have, I've, I struggle to imagine with the history I have and the the, the experience I have had I been a white man in 2020, I think I would have the $6 million. Yes. But not only could I not get access to funding, it was the way I was spoken to. Mm. I had people who have never stepped foot in the back of a pharmacy telling me about compounding and about how, oh, isn't compounding just mixing two creams together? How could that possibly help with the shortage? I had people I was pitching to, funders, prospective funders, say stuff like that to me. I had people tell me in the government offices, the people that are in charge of financing and funding, tell me to go raise a friend and family round. When I had all these people who I could look at, all these other entrepreneurs I could look at, who never raised the friends and family around and they did and also telling me as an Im immigrant to go raise a friend and family around mm -hmm. is really quite blind to the experience yes. of the immigrant um because there's a lot of assumption of intergenerational wealth and social capital baked into that into that suggestion yes i had man the experiences i could save from trying to just like convince people that I actually knew what I knew. Um, I had someone at a bank, I had a wow. banker tell me to stop making this a Canadian problem what? because it's clearly just an African problem. Why am I making drug shortages a Canadian problem? It took all sorts of restraints from pettiness not to send him the shortages um, mm -hmm. clippings when the Tylenol shortages started to have, like all sorts of <laughs> restraints. Not to go, isn't it just an African problem? Mate? It isn't. <laughs> Unfortunately, it isn't. So, <laughs> I would so I would categorize these barriers. I don't even know how do I categorize it? Like there was the the exclusion from funding. Mm -hmm. There is the microaggression and having yes. to deal yes. with all the emotions that go with that. Mm -hmm. There's the overt racism sometimes from from patients um and I, I experienced all of that i would also say an unusual um experience of exclusion has been be i think it's because of the things i'm straddling so i'm straddling science technology engineering manufacturing pharmaceuticals what that seems to do is it seems to me that it's harder to attract skilled personnel um, than I would have imagined it should be. And then when I do attract skilled personnel in, especially in tech and engineering, there's a knowledge asymmetry. I'm a pharmacist, right? Exactly. And they, it feels like advantage gets taken there. Yes. Um, so there's this, it's, it's, there's this asymmetry in knowledge. So then money gets milked in the contracts. <laughs> really particular experience um, from a exclusion um, standpoint wow. and all of that stuff that I've, I've experienced in, in the journey. And for, I mean, obviously there's nothing to justify the what you had to experience because it shouldn't have been your experience in the first place. If anything, I agree with you hundred percent. Like, you know, had this been in with a different demographic, this your your venture would have been fully funded, if not overly funded at this point in time. Um, because you know, what you are doing is you're actually breaking the way pharmaceutical companies work. 
Um, and you are actually bringing uh, manufacturing to the grassroots. And that's really a disruptive way of manufacturing medications, which, you know, it's not mainstream right now, but it's going to be mainstream in the very near future because you're bringing it. Um, and, and you are, you are, you will do it. Like, seriously, I have, I have huge belief in your vision and, you know, I'm here rooting for you every day. Uh, just know that uh, you're, you'll always find a cheerleader in me because uh, I really do deeply believe in the work that you're doing. But at the same time, you know, this further reinforces like what I'm hearing from you further reinforces some of the statistics we continue to see even today around like, you know, how many women owned or women led or women majority startups or ventures are like, I think it's only 2% of funding that's actually going to women led uh, ventures, which is, I'm sorry to say kind of disgusting as a number, because here we are trying to achieve equity. And this is nowhere close to having achieved equity in any way, shape or form. Um, and, and again, then you add all these other layers uh, which, you know, present their own barriers to us. I'm an immigrant. I can completely understand this whole notion of, you know, where do you have a family and friend round when, you know, there was a reason why your family migrated to a different country in the first place. It's like, uh, let's not forget that, you know, uh, I, I understand. And, you know, that I have been reflecting a lot on this as well as an entrepreneur. Like, you know, it is a privilege to become an entrepreneur or to even think of entrepreneurship. Um, you know, not everyone can even go in this direction to be like, I want to start a business because it is resource intensive. It is like, you know, network intensive. It's like, how well do you know people? How well do you know people who will support your vision and making sure you have all the right people supporting you and rooting for you? Because otherwise you're going to fall flat the minute you take off because that's the way the system's designed. Yeah, it, it is tasking in ways that I would never has even imagined if I hadn't taken a leap. Like even in the mindset, the mm. mindset for sales is not the mindset of like you have to have the bandwidth in your mind to have yes. the mindset. For sales. Like you actually have to be able to believe you will have customers. You have to believe in the value you're creating. Yes. You have to have confidence in that. You it's not you're not doing that from a place of neediness necessarily. You're doing it from a place of I've created value and in exchange for my value, I will make money. Like the there is a certain amount of privilege that comes yes. from being able to be in that mindset in that <laughs> mindset. And to be able to be in that mindset while everything is going to shit around you. Forgive my grammar. Like <laughs> it's you're starting something, so it's not even anywhere close to perfect, but you're in this mindset where you're going to just do it and you're going to sell. Like, so there's a certain amount of privilege that comes from me. And at the same time, it's an interesting paradox because when I look at my immigrant friends, I I am always kidding around that I don't know necessarily any auntie that doesn't have a side hustle. Right. Like they're always selling something. They're like, there's hair on the side or shoes or bags. Like all my aunties have side hustles. <laughs> like, so it's, so it's interesting. What is entrepreneurship? Right. Yes. So like, um, it almost is this thing where for a lot of, for a lot of immigrants, it's kind of just your default setting is that right. you are an entrepreneur and then you're in a situation where the system won't let it flourish so then you get a job mm. but there's this other thing that really is the thing you want to do but the system won't there's a negotiation you're having with that right yeah so yeah is it a privilege or is it the thing that the system snuffs out of us I don't mm. know it's a very, I, and I think it's a question that we'll need to deliberate more and more on. Um, uh, unfortunately, for the time of this conversation, because I do want to make sure that I ask you a few, a couple of other questions, um, you know, because we are speaking on the topic of inclusion and, and all of that, like, you know, what are some things you think that can be done better within our profession or, you know, even within the industry that can create that inclusive environment, um, create that welcoming environment so that everyone feels like, you know, we are part of this one unit or this one entity. I think maybe I can speak to the profession. Mm -hmm. um, I think is it comes down to just maybe there are other facets, but I think the thing that comes to mind is critical, critically diverse representation. Right. So when I say critically diverse, I mean, 
not because we selected in, uh, a bunch of people that all look kind of look different because of their mm. racial categories that we've put them in or their ethnic backgrounds, but critical diversity in how we think, yes. in our worldviews, in our ability, in our sexuality, in just the way we're, the perspectives that we're going to be able to see just because of our lived experiences are really quite eclectic. Mm. That critical diversity needs to be in the education system. So when I look up in my classes in pharmacy school, the professors, the people in academia, the leadership, there should be critical diversity yes. there for, for, for the thoughts that is coming through in the profession to be reflective mm -hmm. of that lived experience. It kind of has to be embodied, I think, in our education systems, in our regulatory bodies. Right. When you look at council, when you look at the registrar, when you look at all the operating operating entities for regulations in all the healthcare professions, that critical diversity needs to be there. When we look at the associations, it needs mm -hmm. to be there. When we look at corporations, they need to stop this stuff. Like the C-suite, the vice president, the SVP, there's some corporations you have to go all the way down past the director level to the regional manager before you see the first person that looks like you. Wow. Right? Like, mm -hmm. what is that? You go down eight rungs in mm -hmm. leadership. How can you possibly have inclusivity that's real and authentic when you're, there's no one in your C-suite? There's no one in the SVP. There's no one in the VP. Stop playing. Exactly. And then the board, the board of directors the of the banners yes. and the chains, like how can we be more inclusive as a profession? Mm -hmm. I think there needs to be critical diversity in the where decision making is happening yes for it to be taken seriously for it to be built into the the cultural milieu of our profession that's where it needs to happen and not in a tokenistic way not because we're filling quotas mm. like it has to legitimately happen in there for it to be real i think i agree i agree 100 because i share a similar thought to you um where I, you know, agreed that critical diversity is so important because it has to be, you know, we're diversifying to unifying, right? Like that's the whole purpose as to why we're diversifying. It's not to just, you know, aesthetically look correct or, um, you know, yeah. just because that's a need of the hour or the need of the times of the society yeah. that we live in right now. Um, it should not be done with that purpose. But I agree with that. And with that said, I guess, um, you know, uh, definitely food for thought for our, our audience who's listening to this conversation as well in, in terms of, you know, how can they contribute to this, um, to this? Because I think a part of the onus also lies on us as individuals to make sure that we ask for what we want, um, you know, from um, the organizations and the associations that represent us or, you know, they're working for us so that at least they know what the what our, our requirements are or what we are looking from them as our associations, organizations organizations, corporations, whatever, whatever those entities are. Um, but as we wrap up, uh, I always like to ask these questions with my guests because, uh, you know, you're experts in, uh, I want to make sure that we, we get your painting of, you know, how you see the future of pharmacy, uh, future of pharmacy and pharmacists in the next five to 10 years. What, do, what does that future look like to you? Well, I would like it to contain a whole lot more empathy. <laughs> and so I want to define empathy as perhaps the gap between what patients are currently experiencing mm -hmm. from medicine, from medications, from healthcare, uh, versus what they what would be fulfilling and affirming for them. Right. And empathy would be closing that gap, mm. would be finding ways, not condescending and paternalistic where we decide the way to close the gap, because that would not be empathy. Yes. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> um, but I'd like it to contain a whole lot more of that uh, in the in the way drugs are designed, in who is studied mm -hmm. um, for drug development, in and even for pharmacists too. For the pharmacist experience, this pandemic has been really intense for healthcare professionals. Yes, and I think the workload that has now been taken on has been 
quite exhausting for pharmacists. I know a lot of pharmacists who no longer want to be pharmacists. Like yeah. the appeal of being a pharmacist is, it's a struggle for a lot of people these days. I agree. Um, yeah, so I think five to 10 years, I think it's really a consideration for co-design. How do we co-design with patients, mm. platforms that are actually empowering, medication that actually centers their experience. Mm -hmm. You know, their health and well-being, safety, efficacy, all the good things we do as pharmacists, of course. Right. Safety, 100%. Quality, yes. If efficacy, effectiveness, yes. And also their experience of it. Right. Because if, if people aren't going to adhere to the thing because it doesn't actually work in the way or they're not experiencing it the way it makes sense for them, what is the point? If half of the people you're giving drugs to won't adhere to the drugs for a variety of reasons, but a lot of it is also just mm -hmm. the drugs don't fit into their lives. So that's what I would imagine a whole lot more co-design of, of medication, of platforms, and also with pharmacists, ways of working that are more in line with our natural, who we are as human beings than the way we're currently working is the workload for pharmacists is not natural. I agree. I agree. Yeah. And I think uh, that 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 is a conversation um, that we definitely need to focus on as a, as a profession. Uh, that's another priority conversation that we need to kind of figure out, you know, is how do we balance all these new scopes of practices that we're getting and making sure that it still remains a, a profession, which, you know, uh, which keeps authentically connected to who we are as individuals, but also making sure that we're able to create this practice, which, you know, supports our patients in the best way possible. Moving, moving forward from that, because you also have a healthcare focus and you're trying to, you know, have this revolution kind of thing going on. Uh, how do you describe the future of healthcare in the next five years, at least from the work that you're doing? Like, you know, where, like you have a global perspective, so I love to hear this one. <laughs> I imagine it's more collaborative mm. than we currently have. And technology really allows this to happen. So you have all the infrastructure now with digital health and right. all the different ways you can access healthcare professionals. And I would imagine even more collaboration between different types of healthcare professionals that once again, center our patients. I imagine in the global work I'm doing that we really ironically return to that original way pharmacists were. So this idea of really distributing drug making, decentralizing drug making, and finding ways that we are actually really sensitive to the local needs. Mm -hmm. So I imagine that that future with health tech, with the digitization of supply chains, but also connecting with patients. So to make it more specific, I imagine in 2028, I'm able to, in my facility, customize medications for one trans kid in Celebi Pique. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, in that same facility, the next day, if I find out that there's an outbreak um, of cholera and dysentery, I can make all the oral rehydration solution for nice. Botswana from the same facility. Wow. So I'm imagining like this ability to mass customize, this ability to do what is actually needed for supply chain resiliency for mm -hmm. drugs and do it in a way that it really does enable community. It enables the one patient who needed the one very specific drug. And at the same time, it served like the entire country that needed something very particular as well because of a, a public health outbreak right right so i imagine that that is possible in five years yeah wonderful wonderful what a hopeful optimistic way to kind of wrap up this conversation and i think that's truly has been the theme of this entire conversation I have thoroughly enjoyed having you on here, Marnike, and I really do like, you know, wish you all the very best um, as you continue this work that you are doing and leading. And, you know, I, I can't wait for 
like you know the future announcements and like the the progression you make. I will definitely be following you very closely and just you know what you're up to. I love it. I have been loving your posts on LinkedIn, especially where you're sharing your experiences in all these African nations. And um, look forward to hearing more from you about your experiences as we continue this journey. Um, thank you so much for making this time. I know this was a difficult one for you while we we're trying to coordinate all these time zone changes oh, and uh, internet I'm and glad, everything else. <laughs> I'm glad we made it. We you stuck with it, and we, I'm glad we made it work. Thanks, Oscar. Uh, I'm so glad we made this because this conversation is something our audience will definitely enjoy. I'm certain of that and I can't wait to um, share this with them. But with that said, I will let you go. Uh, but I also wanted to make take this time to let, let remind our audience that, um, you know, we will be sharing all of um, Marnika's and Kemet Group's work uh, within our description box below. So please feel free to check it out. They're up to some great things. So if you're looking to, um, you know, learn more about them, do check out the links and uh, reach out to Marnike on LinkedIn if you ever have any questions about what she's up to. Because uh, she's somebody that you definitely want to speak to at least once and you'll be so inspired. Uh, that I can guarantee you. <laughs> all right, Marnike, with that, I will sign off here. Um, thank you again and all the very best with your trip. Until next time. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you.